Welcome to the next installment of the SUA's news podcast series where we interview newsmakers and discuss the news and applications relevant to the global unmanned technology community. I'm your program host, Patrick Egan, and as we always do at this time, let's say hello and a big hearty welcome to our uh, co-host, Mr. Gene Robinson. It never ceases to amaze me how you can get through that whole sentence without taking a breath, but that's outstanding, Patrick. How are you, sir? <clears throat> Good. I've been practicing for about seven or eight years. Yeah, so, I noticed. So I finally got that down. Good. Slow learner, but, you know, four score and seven years. There I am. <laughs> I finally got it down. So, you know, I know um, you're, you've been doing a lot of training. I've been trying to get in touch with you. You're, you know, can't pick up. You're giving uh, presentations. You're, you know, yickety yakking and you know telling people about uh how to find people and fire and all the rest of that stuff what what have you been up to sir well that's pretty much it uh you know we've got this public safety training program that we're working with here out of austin community college and that thing has been very well received and uh through them we've been talking to a lot of agencies and and uh this last Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, we were at a Sheriff's Association show, which uh, had a whole bunch of guys in uh, white cowboy hats and starched white shirts that uh, were wandering around trying to figure out how they were going to incorporate drones into their uh, their agency. And uh, let me tell you what, it was a very receptive audience. I, I, I kind of had a laugh. I, I, I was standing in front of a room that uh, was standing room only, by the way, on one of the sessions. And uh, I said, you know, guys, it's really funny that, you know, just a few short years ago, there was only three of you standing in this room, and now the whole room is full. So uh, it's kind of a, an indication of where we're going. Well, that's good. Yes, we only had a few champions um, in, the, in, the, in the field, and it's good that it's growing because, I mean, it does work, and, you know, we're going to hear more about that today. Um, lots of stuff going on. Um, I don't know if you've seen, I've been writing a lot of stories. Uh, some would say are a little critical of the FAA. No. No. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I've been saying this was going to happen, that the chickens were going to come home to roost, and uh, I got a whole coop over here full of roosting chickens, and that's okay. Um, you know, some folks think I'm a little hard. I, I don't know. I still... We've been both been at this for, God, almost 20 years. Um, you probably remember back then, you probably had less aches and pains. I had hair. I wasn't so fat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and uh, so people are like, well, gosh, you're, you know, you're hard on people. It's like, hey, if you had to listen to the platitudes that I had to endure in the last 20 years, you'd be salty, too. So. Just saying. You know, Patrick. Yes, sir. I I never thought I would hear someone say this, but uh, I was told here this past week someone that knew of you and said that you were not aggressive enough. Oh, my God. Really? I never hear that. I usually hear something else. If if you were any more aggressive, we'd have to hide you out in the safe room because there'd be a hit list on you a mile long. I uh, know. Well, you know, I got my first credible uh, death threat on Twitter the other day. So I, I feel like I've uh, arrived 
you know. <laughs> you made it, huh? Uh, okay. Uh, uh, well, some people are, you know, they're like, oh, you're too hard. But I, I don't really think so. I mean, I see a lot of uh, this as something that uh, really I shouldn't even have to bring up, you know, so whatever. We'll see what transpires. I do think, uh, you know, um, there is some room for improvement, and hopefully the, all of this grousing, and I know that a lot more people are listening, uh, members of Congress, staffers, uh, federal administrations, even besides the FAA are listening, and hopefully, I, I hope that the, the grousing um, acts as kind of grease for the skids, and we just get the same deal that, you know, everybody else is getting, even if you don't have lobbyists. But anyway, I don't want to go to, pardon me. Too far down the road. Good. Jeez. But uh, so let's bring on our guest. Without further ado, let's uh, bring on uh, Mr. Mark Bathrick, and he is the director of the Office of Aviation Services of the Interior. Hello, sir. Hello, Patrick. Hello, Gene. It's uh, it's great to be here today. Well, it's great to have you, and I'm surprised you're still here after that diatribe. You didn't hang up, and uh, no, I'm just kidding. I'm an avid reader, an avid listener. Okay, good. You know, it is funny. I uh, when people call me and they're like, "Yeah, I really found such and such to be funny." I'm like, "Well, I'm glad you got that." And, you know, whatever else. I try to add some humor to these things. Do you see the humor in any of these stories, or does it just sound like sour grapes to you, Mark? No, I I think it, we need people to keep uh, keep us on our toes. Well, no that's who what we I'm are. Here for. Well, that's good. Well, and it's always good to be, you know, humble. I mean, you know, I tell people that too. You may not always agree. That's okay. We can't always agree on everything. But anyway, Mark, um, maybe you could give us a, a brief bio about yourself and how you came to work and find the magic uh, that's <laughs> in small unmanned aircraft systems. Yeah, uh, sure. Um, so my first career uh, was uh, active duty Navy where I was uh, – a Navy fighter pilot, um, uh, tech recce pilot. So I used to do what uh, drones do now, um, flying and find out people didn't like getting their pictures taken a lot and they'd shoot at you uh, <laughs> over foreign countries. Um, and then uh, I really got into drones when I, uh, when I went to test pilot school. And uh, subsequent to that, uh, I got to work on some drone programs. And, and my second squadron command actually had – 19 uh, QF4 Phantoms, and uh, so we flew those uh, unmanned. We flew them uh, manned, sometimes uh, both ways in the same day. And then uh, my last uh, tour in the Navy, I was base commander, and uh, we had uh, a number of unmanned aircraft uh, flying from that base from different services. And uh, retired from the Navy as a uh, captain and came to work for Department of the Interior and um immediately saw the value of unmanned aircraft systems for what the Department of the Interior's responsibilities were. And so um, that's kind of how I got to where I am today. Well, we're going to assume that you're not a jerk if you made it to the rank of captain. Got to have friends somewhere. <laughs> Somebody's got to like you somewhere. You know? Unlike, you know, <laughs> well, go ahead. And thank you for your service, sir, too, by the way. Yes. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. You're welcome. All right. 
so, but, uh, you know, so that's how you uh, became acquainted with the unmanned aircraft systems. Um, so, you know, it's kind of interesting, you know, so you're, you uh, work with the Department of Interior, and, and a lot of times people are like, what, what? you know, I don't even know that it really exists. But uh, maybe uh, you can, I know, it's going to be funny, by the end of this podcast, you're going to be like, well, how didn't you know that this existed? Because you guys do a lot of stuff, and I want to talk about that right now. So what is the Department of Interior's charge? Yeah, so you're absolutely right, Patrick. Uh, a lot of people, probably including me before I actually applied for this job, uh, didn't have a really, done a really clear idea of what the Department of Interior was. Actually, when it was first uh, stood up in 1849, it was uh, kind of called the Department of Everything Else. And um, But we are um, the largest single land steward in the United States. Um, responsible for over 500 million acres uh, onshore, uh, 1.7 billion acres in the uh, outer continental shelf. Uh, just the onshore stuff is about one in every five acres. Uh, I'm based in Boise, Idaho, here in the West, and so a lot of it's out in the West. A lot of it's in um, up in Alaska as well. But uh, the other interesting thing about those responsibilities, it's, it's all your land. It's all the people's land, all public land. And so a lot of vast responsibilities, a lot of, um, I would say, rugged terrain um, puts our folks in a lot of uh, dangerous situations. And, you know, we're one of the few agencies that run towards fires, floods, volcanoes, and earthquakes. Um, and so that's why when I got to this job and was responsible for all of our aviation, it really struck me that unmanned aircraft services could, uh, you know, really, uh, systems could really help us uh, do our mission uh, you know, as they say, better, faster, cheaper, and safer. Yes, well, and you guys are care, uh, covering a lot of territory. I didn't realize that on, and you the, know, on the shelf, too. Wow. Go ahead, Gene. Um, I've actually flown for you guys back in the day uh, and personally witnessed what uh, what kind of reach you guys have because uh, I flew several SAR missions out in the Mojave Desert. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, there was a, a German family that had been missing out there for a very long time. It was a it was a pretty big case, you know, back in the day. But uh, we went out there looking for them all all along the edge of China Lake there, and we were flying drones uh, uh, out of your uh, Death Valley office there. And and uh, they, as a matter of fact, uh, ended up getting a drone early on. They were first adopter, but I think your your aviation safety department. Um, went through some turmoil there for a while, and uh, I don't know what happened to that aircraft. Yeah, you know, uh, I got here in 2006, and um, prior to that, the department's uh, exploration into unmanned aircraft systems was kind of hit and miss. Um, We started, you know, I I had obviously a lot of experience in uh, DOD with uh, managing big aviation units and so we started our program um, and and tried to put some programmatic rigor to it so actually from 2006 to 2009 we we got policy together we got training we talked to a lot of folks in FAA DOD and and other agencies and and then um, really didn't start our flying program until about 2009 and then we did 
a, a bunch of operational test and evaluation of uh, $25 million worth of uh, DOD uh, excess small unmanned aircraft that we got for free and, uh, and oh, that's used right. that to develop our requirements. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so this is kind of the, the first time that Interior has really brought this together in, in a, a kind of a coherent program. Yeah, and I remember that too when you got all of the uh, surplus stuff and uh, talking to some folks, uh, people were not, didn't really, let's say, um, the tools that were put in the toolbox weren't really what you were looking for or did it work or what, what would you, how would you... I mean, I don't want to be like, you know, here's the gift horse in the mouth. Get out of here. We don't want this stuff. But, I mean, was it something you could use or you found something that works better? Yeah, um, great question. Thank you for asking that because it was actually very surprising to me. I figured, you know, I, I knew it uh, with, with the price point of small unmanned aircraft and, and how Department of Defense likes to go on to the next greatest thing, that we could, we could live um, – we could live happily with the cast-offs, uh, but once we got those out into the uh, into the missions, and we were flying uh, Ravens and T-Hawks, um, and and some of these were arriving still in the shrink wrap because they'd gone on to the next version, uh, so we weren't getting you know broken broken down pieces of equipment. But what we what we learned, Patrick, was that um, the missions that we have in Interior required uh, a, a level of uh, sensor resolution and sensor versatility uh, that really wasn't required for the DOD mission. You know, the Ravens, Seahawks came with your basic electro-optical, basic infrared, and uh, and that was good for them, but we needed much uh, better resolution. We're down to sub-centimeter resolution for some of the missions that we're, uh, we're currently flying and a number of, of different sensors and then it was also the the processing, you know. So for us, it's it's platform, it's payload, and processing. Those are the three key aspects of the of the UAS. And we do a lot of mapping, a lot of uh, 3D modeling, uh, point cloud, a lot of photogrammetry mm-hmm. that wasn't in the in the DoD mission. So uh, we actually used that experience about four years of flying, and. Um, and developed a set of requirements, which uh, very detailed requirements, which I'm really proud to say are probably the only agency in the world. Um, our UAS requirements are actually published um, out on the web for anyone to go take a look at. Well, we were going to uh, talk about that, too, um, as far as like a website address where people could check that out. We usually do that at the end, but since we're talking about it, is it something simple or is it like front slash dot this and that? Because I could always put it in the show notes later. I could add it to that if it's just yeah, easier. Yeah, so uh, I remember I'm a fighter pilot, so for me, simple is the only way to go. So mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> if people if people go on Google and just type DOI base UAS, I am happy to say we pop to the top. Okay, good. Because uh, so we're that's all the easiest you know, way to slow on the <laughs> uptake. I hear when it comes to web addresses, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I hate those flashes and uh, I get them all wrong. Uh, I know. My friend. I, 
Exactly. Okay, well, that's good because, you know, people like to uh, do homework and dig in and see what other people are doing, especially when there's operations that are buttoned down. So, you know, so we covered a lot there. One, 1849. That's a long time ago. That's I'm sitting here in uh, Sacramento, and uh, that's when this city was incorporated many moons ago. You know, we got probably listeners around the world that are like, that was like yesterday, you know. But for us here in the West, that was uh, that was a long time ago, and uh, you know it's kind of an interesting thing. You guys have been around a long time. There's lots of things that you guys are doing, which I want to unpack and get more into. But I do want to talk about the DoD system. You know, even from the integration part of this, early on, and Gene probably remembers this too. We had the guys, the DoD vendors, guys going, "Man, this stuff is." This is this is the bee's knees. This does everything, and I called it the. They're great, I said, but I just don't see how they're going to fit into the commercial world. You know, with the, it, it, you're not going to be conus and doing the asymmetrical warfare overlay. We don't we don't really need that here. You know, it's like the machine gunner MOS. You know, what are you going to do with that in the civilian life? <laughs> you know, whatever. So it was nice. You got the stuff. You flew it around. You tried to use that as a tool to do what you need to do. But like you said, you're doing mapping and other things. So, you know, maybe you could drill down a little bit more. I mean, what, you know, oh, we're doing some mapping. Well, what are you doing? Are you, are you, are you looking for, uh, you know, or different animals or, you know, insects or, you know, plants, invasive species? What, you know, what's going on out there? Yeah. Yeah. Um, great question. So uh, I like to say animal, vegetable, or mineral. Uh, we will count it. Um, we'll, we'll probably count it every year. Uh, so as an example, if you're, if you're a duck hunter, uh, mm-hmm. you rely on us to do migratory bird surveys so, uh, so we can set the, uh, the bag limits for, um, for hunting seasons. Uh, uh, there's endangered species. There are invasive species of plant and animal um, Things happen with the earth, earthquakes, uh, floods, um, volcanoes, and and we're on those. Wildfires, of course, big part out here in the West that we're involved in. Uh, Gene mentioned the uh, the uh, out in the Mojave folks getting lost. Uh, it's amazing how many folks get lost, and uh, and so we've been yeah. using them um, in that capacity as well. Um, we've been doing uh, water sampling, gas sampling. Uh, you know, we've qualified uh, about a, a dozen and a half different sensors for, you know, and we're using small commercial, you know, all uh, SUAS right now. And uh, so, and, and the other really fascinating thing about this, this incredibly powerful tool is we're able to put it in the hands of of our biologists and our geologists and scientists and the firefighters. Uh, it's just a, another tool in their their toolkit. Uh, so we have uh, over 450 uh, Part 107 uh, certified and uh, DOI trained. We send them through a one-week uh, training course here to make sure that the, uh, we think they're good to go. And then, um, you know, so we have 450 DOI operators, and they're all current employees. We haven't had to hire anyone, so we've just given them additional skills. So those are the mm. kind of things we're we're doing with them right now and um i'll tell you the the other 
really fascinating part of this is that it's the folks in the field that keep uh, coming up with new ideas on how to apply uh, this technology. They're the ones that came up with doing aerial ignition uh, from a drone instead of a helicopter, uh, which uh, since 2005, uh, we've lost three helicopters and killed six people doing that mission from helicopters. And so now we're doing it um, from drones. It's our second year of using drones for aerial ignition. That's cool. And you touched on another um, subject there that one of the listeners asked me earlier, are you um, doing any contract services or is this all in-house now? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, appreciate your listener asking that. Uh, we're in the second year of uh, contract services. So we started out with fleet uh, because that was, you know, back in the, back in the day, full part one seven, we were able to, you know, operate as a public aircraft operation. Uh, but, you know, in the manned aviation world that uh, was our bread and butter before UAS, about 69% of all of our manned flying is contracted out. So contracting is a natural part for us. And, and so we have a contract with, I think we have eight different vendors on that contract now. Um, flying some of, still SUAS, but uh, some of the more complex uh, aircraft and uh, mainly on some of the larger fires to provide that persistent uh, mapping and, uh, and and actually helping direct firefighters to uh, to take care of issues that they wouldn't have seen had it not been for the UAS Overwatch. Right, right. That's, that's another question that uh, I think everybody would like to hear is what sort of aircraft are you flying? I mean, can you give us? Yeah, Gene. So, um, so I start with the the fleet. So we have uh, six, almost six hundred and fifty um, SUAS in the uh, in the fleet. Uh, vast majority of those are uh, small quadcopters. Uh, we do have uh, some uh, uh, fixed wing uh, that um, you know the kind of hybrid fixed wing, vertical takeoff, and uh, and then uh, regular forward flight uh, fixed wing. And, uh, you know, for us, the, the, the SUS are the, are the key because we can, we can pack them out with our, our folks in the field. On the, on the contracts, we're, we're looking at the, like I said, the larger, more complex um, things like the Scan Eagle, um, uh, Silent Falcon, some of the other, uh, you know, that uh, are um, either catapult launched or, or otherwise assisted launch. And then, and some kind of uh, belly landing or arrested recovery. Are you uh, staying away from the uh, larger systems, like purchasing yourself for any specific reason, or is it just something you can kind of contract and forget? Or is there, you know, I mean, how come you're not buying up a bunch of scan eagles, I guess I should say? Yeah. Um, so when we designed the program, we wanted to make sure that it, it met um, the, the requirements as well as, uh, you know, the ability of the department to support. So, you know, coming from, from DOD, I like to remind my, my compatriots back there that our entire appropriation for the Department of the Interior could not buy today one of the aircraft carriers I used to land on. So we're a $12 billion total, and that's a lot of money, don't get me wrong, but 
it's about one sixtieth of the Department of Defense. Um, so uh, we we also we don't um, we don't operate near many airports. Right? So you know, frankly, if you if your uh, your drone's got wheels on it, you're going to be far away from where we're going to operate, and uh, and so we don't have infrastructure. Um, our personnel uh, are really smart in in areas I could never be smart in. Um, but you know, when it comes to us training them to be to be pilots, um, we want something that's uh, fairly intuitive and simple to operate. And so that kind of drove us to. Uh, the kind of aircraft, the small unmanned aircraft we have in the fleet. And then when we start to get into some of these more uh, complex uh, and costly uh, aircraft in the unmanned world, it's just like our more costly and complex aircraft in the manned world. It makes more sense for us to contract that out because even though our fire seasons have become more of a fire year, there's still some seasonality Mm -hmm. to our uh, use. So it just makes more sense for not only us, but I think the American taxpayer to, to contract that out. Well, and and the other thing that I wanted to, it's not only a, a cost thing, but, and I don't want to go down the Debbie Downer road, you know, with the regulatory <laughs> part of this, but you said, you know, yeah, we've got a bunch of um, scientists and biologists and, you know, map makers, whatever else, and they're 107 pilots, which is exactly uh, what makes the small UAS, let's say tick, is having the expert doing his own data, his or her own data collection. Okay. Now, mm-hmm. when you get into the bigger systems and you need a catapult and all the rest of that stuff, it would indicate to me that uh, these operations would be on beyond visual line of sight. Um, I'm I'm figuring that some of this territory that you're talking about is pretty remote. Are you guys uh, able to work with other federal agencies to get the declarances and waivers and whatnot to actually wring the value out of these bigger systems? Yes, and, and that's been from the from the beginning of our program um, a, a focus. Um, as you say, we have a lot of land; a lot of it's remote, um, and so back in. 2014, I think, is when we got our uh, first authorization from the FAA to go beyond visual line of sight within uh, a temporary flight restriction that uh, is often uh, put over the top of the large fires. And and we've we've worked uh, closely to um, with the FAA and other agencies to show that we are deserving of that uh, uh, expanded authority. And uh, this last year. We got additional authorities to go um, to what I call extended visual line of sight um, in certain remote areas where I can't see the drone visually, but I can see where it is on the GCS. But I can also, but I do have enough visual clearance where I could see another aircraft. Mm-hmm. And, and so with that, I would then take action to make sure I avoid that aircraft. We've also gotten permission to do um, kind of daisy chain uh, visual line of sight. And uh, in six of the bigger national parks where we have actual dispatch centers, uh, we've gotten uh, permission to go beyond visual line of sight uh, as long as we coordinate within those uh, uh, parks uh, dispatch centers. So 
Um, we've been pretty lucky. Um, can we, we are responsible for a lot of land. A lot of it's out where um, there isn't a lot of uh, air traffic. So, um, yeah, our relationship with the FAA has probably been better than, than most. Um, that uh, so far we're, we're, we're satisfied. Well, that's cool. As you're, you know, telling that story, I'm thinking back, and probably Gene's probably doing the same. You remember the good old days, Gene? <laughs> oh, yeah, the bad old days. The bad old days where, you know, you you, you could do all this stuff. And actually, uh, man, I remember I was so excited. I was like a kid in a candy store thinking, man, this, this technology is going to change the world. So, well, um it does sound like it's changing the world. I do think, uh, you know, scientifically, I think uh, we can prove that certain areas are safe to fly these different size systems in. I'm not a scientist, but I do believe that, uh, uh, you know, it could be calculated. And I'm sure there's areas where you're flying that are so remote that there's probably like, you know, two prairie dogs per square <laughs> kilometer, uh, yada, yada, yada out there and uh you know the the risk would be uh, relatively low and the return would be high um and, and i find that frustrating um that we have to go through a, a process like we do but uh, you know whatever you got to make uh, lemonade with the lemons that you got so you're doing all of that and you know you, you you did talk about something earlier mark that uh kind of you know had a had an appealing sound to me, and that was saving the taxpayer some bread. Taxpayer mm-hmm. right here likes to save bread. So, what are we talking about here? Couch cushion money, or are we really uh, are we really saving some money? <laughs> oh, I would say we're saving uh, a lot of money. Um, just to give you, a, a, let me start with our fleet. Uh, I said about six hundred and fifty uh, drones. That entire fleet, you take the average cost of our drones in the fleet, about 3600 bucks a copy. Now, you know, okay, it's pretty decent, but the whole fleet, do the math, is actually less than the cost of some of the single aircraft we have in the fleet. And we're not talking, you know, F-35s. We're, we're talking, you know, like Beach King Airs and, you know, yep. uh, PC-12s and, and that sort of thing. Exactly, Gene, yeah. So... You know, think about that. I got, you got 650 sets of eyes and sensors out there for the cost of what otherwise I'd have to spend, you know, that same amount of money for, for one set of eyes. Um, you know, and we're replacing uh, a lot of uh, – we're not replacing a lot of manned aviation. You know, it's like in DOD. When we put drones in, <laughs> it, you know, I didn't have to fly tack recce anymore, which was nice. I didn't like getting shot at at low altitude. Um, what? So we're taking – well, yeah, no kidding. So we, we t- we're taking people out of some of these very hazardous situations. Good example, um, inspecting dams. You know, mm. throw an engineer over the side with a rope. Who are we using a drone now? So um, when you think about the traditional means of doing these, and we looked at this in our 2018 report, which I hope folks will go out on the website and take a look at. But, you know, in just 2018, we figured we saved uh, $14.8 million dollars between what it would have cost traditionally to go. do those missions and and what it costs to do them with the drones. Now, that's, think about that, say $15 million every year. That, that'll add up. That, that's much more than couch change. 
Um, yeah. The other thing, um, the other thing we're really seeing, you know, in, in, out here in the, in the West, you know, anything West of the Mississippi is, you know, fire's a big deal. And, and we've got some, some documented reports out there, not from us, but from others who said, you know, um, we've had a number of cases where the drones have spotted spot fires behind the fire line. You know, the, the embers blow over. Yes. And now you got one you don't know is back there. And and people out here in the West, we understand, you know, it's not a column of smoke. The entire region is smoky. And so you can't tell where there's a new fire or where there's an old fire. And in, in one case in Oregon back in 2017, the power company said, if you guys had not found that spot fire, which had grown to like five acres, and the drone not only found it, but actually directed the firefighters on the ground with their engines in to put it out. There's 50 million dollars worth of power infrastructure land value behind that you guys didn't even know there was a fire back there to begin with so uh, you know we're, we're seeing that time and time again where we're able to catch um, particularly these spot fires at, at night and and during the day that otherwise go undetected and and so we think we're just even now just scratching the surface on on the payback that that kind of um, return is going to provide uh, when it comes to these unmanned aircraft. And I mentioned the aerial admission. Now he's saving lives there, which is, you know, much better than money, but also um, we're able to do this mission at night. We never could do that uh, with a helicopter. So um, as you can tell, I'm very excited. I think there's a tremendous opportunity here for, uh, for the taxpayer to reap great benefits from, uh, from this application. Oh, I'm, you know. Well, you know, uh, Mark, I, I got to tell you, you were just, man, you were ringing the bell on my side because I don't know if you know it, but I was the chief pilot for NIST, the National Institute uh-huh. of Standards and Technology on the Wildland Urban Interface Fire Research Project. And uh, we were yep. flying the Superbat, which is, uh, you know, a, a, a long endurance bird for, you know, a Cat 1 anyway. And, um, uh, that was what we looked at. We looked at, uh, you know, amber flows and, and how to spot those backfires and that sort of thing. And that was that was back in 2011. So, yeah, I, I, I totally get that. I know exactly what you're talking about. I haven't seen it with my own eyes. It's uh, I, I'm tickled to death to hear the numbers that you're talking about because as we sat and flew those things, we were kind of throwing numbers around ourselves. Nobody likes a disaster economy. And, you know, that's, that's right. typically what – is what happens when you get a wildfire going that uh, runs through a, a bunch of wooded areas and into the uh, the urban interface. So, anyways, that's that's uh, that's super to hear those kind of numbers. And I uh, hate to you know be contrary there, Gene, but I think California is uh, excelling at that uh, emergency <laughs> economy <laughs> because. Uh, Every time I turn around here, oh my God, somebody stubs their toe. We got it's an emergency. It's getting crowded out here, and this is probably another thing you guys both see. Is uh, I mean, there's a lot more people living in areas that were remote. You know, here in California, we used to have uh, this area called Desolation Wilderness. I don't even know if it's still on the map anymore, but we used to go up there and you go camping. You wouldn't see anybody for a week. You know, you'd be up there uh, with nobody. 
And now I, I think that's all. I think they have campgrounds out there now and everything else. So you have people living in these areas and uh, people are encroaching in these in these areas, moving into the forest and all of these other areas, uh, hillsides and whatnot and canyons, building homes in, uh, let's say, fuel-rich environments. Um, so, I, you know, I don't know. I think we might be creating some of these or, or putting some of these problems, making, creating some of these problems. Anybody... Yeah, of course. Am I wrong? Or? Well, I, I think there's an opportunity here. And so I've had some, I've had numerous conversations with my colleagues in the insurance industry, Patrick, and and, yes. and as Gene knows, this this wild urban inter, you know, uh, wildland urban interface is a big big issue, as you've just talked it about. It is, you know, and and while. Well, the federal government's got the experts that can tell you, you know, this is the kind of uh, defensible space you should have. And you really shouldn't have that pine tree, you know, planted right next to your house, perhaps. And, you know, um, we, we have limited authority. But, you know, if my insurance company comes to me and says, you know, Mark, we'd like to run this survey over your house. And you know what? If you get rid of the bad stuff and put some defensible space in there, we will actually still insure you. And maybe we won't jack your insurance price up so i think there's there's a collaboration here with between either state local federal governments that um with the insurance industry who has the the hammer if you will uh to to help address this they're not going to keep people from moving out there but you know if we can make them safer it actually um improves the safety of our firefighters because they're not doing structure uh firefighting they're taking care of the wildland fire because they know the houses are protected well, that's maybe how it works over there in the 49 free states. But over here, <laughs> you know, I have a cabin in the woods, and uh, I'm, I don't have insurance. That's that's coming up, and that's a yeah. whole other uh, – yeah. I, uh, I don't even want to go down that road. Anyway, it's great. I love uh, <laughs> I love the trees. Want to do some canoeing. Uh, it's going to be great. Um, so, yeah, on one hand, uh, Mark, I kind of uh, – envy your job you're probably in the great outdoors all the time and there's trees and animals and creeks and rivers and is it anything like that or are you in a federal office building <laughs> lots of paper and computers what's it like well um so uh we're actually a pretty small organization my office of aviation services we're a total of 80 people we manage aviation across the country a headquarters in Boise, Idaho, lovely, um, a small office in Atlanta and a small office in, in Anchorage. Um, I unfortunately don't get to, to fly. I get to just manage a lot of great people who get to fly and maintain their crap. Uh, so you're not in the canoe. Your canoe is the desk. My canoe is the desk. My desk does go up and down, so, you know, that's about the only thing I can Right. moves in my office well there it goes right there I'm exp- I'm like taking you out on the lake with on the canoe checking it all out <laughs> alright well you know bubble sorry about that. I know there it goes damn well yeah now I know how that goes you know being in the uh, you gotta you know I'm sure you've got um, a couple of paperwork things that you have to work on to get to let's see the whole the, the things to line up and uh, make the whole machine work um and i didn't you know again i'm not trying to it sounds good whatever um 
So are we uh, going to, you, I mean, you see this program expanding? Are you kind of at a, maybe at a block regulatory-wise or money-wise or you don't have enough people that want to fly drones in your organization or is you think this thing's going to start mushrooming or what? Yeah, so um, just, uh, so uh, 2016 to 2017, before, uh, 2016 before we were doing hundreds of, of flights, 2017 we did almost 5,000, that was a banner year, 2018 uh, I said we were going to do a 50% increase, we did a 108% increase to over 10,000 flights, um, we're, we're uh, our, our biggest challenge is is keeping up with demand. Um, I, I am among the many things I'm proud of with this program. We've developed this program um, with zero dollars, additional mm. dollars, and zero personnel. So if my uh, out of 80 people, um, I have a uh, UAS division of six people, uh, plus me as a part timer, uh, and those were all repurposed from from other positions over the last uh, 13 years. And as I say, we're, we're, we're not hiring new people. We're really training people that already exist uh, and, and putting these tools in their, in their hands. Um, The, the missions, you know, we have, we have a a vision for this program that uh, certainly includes expansion into um, other areas of of dangerous work that we do, uh, you know, aerial capture, eradication, tagging of animals, you know, shooting a, a dart or a net out of a helicopter at 20 feet as you're chasing an elk is a dangerous mission. Looking at that, we do that with a, a drone, right? Um, avalanche mitigation, you know, firing a howitzer up into the snow mass. Uh, why don't we take a drone up there with a sensor that tells us where that weak spot is and, and drop a small charge um, so because like shooting that, the howitzer is uh, more fun. <laughs> I've gotten that answer actually, uh, but we missed some times. No good job. <laughs> I have personally witnessed a Laws rocket miss an entire mountain mm. up in the in the Rockies. They were going to do a, <laughs> a an avalanche remediation, and they set up with the the Laws rocket, and they fired, and it went right over the top. And everybody waited for the explosion on the other side, and nothing happened. Well, you know what they say: don't uh, don't check any foreign objects, XO. You know, or that's right. Hey, when the next year there. could have been a real surprise. Exactly. It's <laughs> uh, funny. I have, uh, yes, go. I want to just uh, if uh, if I could, I want to touch on um, another example for the future. Where I think is uh, a real game changer in fire as well as leveraging already spent taxpayer dollars. So as I mentioned um, my past, I had 19 optionally piloted jets. But, you know, the Marines yeah, uh, fielded an op- optionally piloted helicopter um, to Afghanistan, did thousands of missions, uh, delivering supplies to Ford Marine bases, mostly at night. And oh, by the way, it happens to be in a helicopter that we use on fire. Um, now, your listeners may not know. I was shocked to find out. Um, we don't fight fire at night, and, and we, mm-hmm. we don't even right. launch in the morning. We don't even launch in the mornings. I went out on a fire uh, with uh, one of our lead plane pilots. We didn't launch until 1.30 in the afternoon because of the smoke Yep. way yep. down in the valley. So 
so we've done a couple of demos, you know, with industry paying for those demos uh, in 2014, 2015. Just imagine being able to triple the amount of time. Not only you're out there dropping water on a fire, but maybe that fire started after you stopped flying normally. And now you can go out and attack that one lightning strike fire, and it's only a tree fire and not a 1,000 acres by morning. So, you know, I think that's a really interesting uh, piece that Congress has asked us to look at. We've, we've kind of already done that. Uh, but I think that's another future application, obviously not in the small, but if you think about those optionally piloted helicopters, they're, they're actually safer, right, because they were built for pilots like me to stay safe, and they're easy to see, and they already carry transponders. Um, so that's an area that we're continuing to look at. I think there's a tremendous uh, payback for that in uh, in the future. Let me guess, Huey 212s. But, you know, you could put this on any, uh, as, as we proved with the F-4 Phantom, as they've done now with the F-16, right? It, it doesn't take much technology to take an aircraft and, and make it so you can fly it from the ground or from the cockpit. And and we think it's, no, it it's really, doesn't. really important. It's important to fly it both ways because, you know, we can talk about regulatory. We don't have to worry about how do we transit a, a drone helicopter to the next fire. We'll just pop the pilot back in. It's the same pilot that was flying during the day because we're not going to change the way we do business there and, and just fly it to the next fire. So uh, I think any of the helicopters we fly now, we could we could do that with. All right. Well, and you, you, you know, that is one of the – the things that uh, people, I, I mean, I'm right here. We got the big Cal Fire uh, aviation thing here in Sa uh, Sacramento. Um, great facility. If you ever get out here, you should go and uh, tour mm -hmm. that where they, uh, the, they do their maintenance. It's a fantastic facility. Um, they also, they, they have the uh, 747 out here, the tanker. That thing is, uh, they were doing touch and goes <laughs> while I was at camp this summer. That was, that was really kind of cool. Um, but yeah. you're right. There are no nighttime operations. There's no early morning operations. Um, and that is because of uh, smoke and other hazards. And really, it's it's kind of fighting the, the fires with one hand tied behind our back. I mean, that's another situation where, you know, there's usually a loss of life and, and things like that. I, I don't want to get on the Debbie Downer stuff with the FAA, but I think that we could prove that the risk – would outweigh, uh, or, or the benefits could outweigh the risk in some of these things. We're talking about, you know, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars worth of damage, lives lost, um, you know, homes lost, blah, blah, blah. Lots, lots of stuff that mm -hmm. we, could, we could help fix. Anyway, we, we ran over the 45, which I had a feeling we would do, because <laughs> the conversation, as soon as it gets rolling, you know, it's, there's all kinds of great avenues we could go down. So, We'll, we'll probably have to have you uh, come back, Mark, for part two here uh, in the future, maybe after summer's over, and, uh, you know, talk about more of this stuff. But it was great having you on, and it was great talking about what you're doing, and I'm glad that you're saving us all money. That makes me feel good. Gene, not so much, because he likes to, he's just over there. He's sending <laughs> checks in every week. <laughs> you know, how much more do you want? Here you go. No. Um, but uh, no, it was great having you on and a uh, great conversation. And I want to thank both of you gentlemen for being on and our listeners, you know, till next time. So thanks again, Mark. Thank you. Thank you, Patrick. And All thank right. you for what you're doing. Gene, nice talking yeah. to you as well. You bet. 
Y'all take it easy now. <laughs> Stay Bye. cool.